This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Good morning again. I want to welcome you to this seminar. The, um, the whole seminar is entitled, entitled Reaching the Heart of a Broken World. The first session is Living on E. This is going to talk about the, our own personal journey to be close to Jesus and uh, some of the challenges that we face along the way and uh, some of the fears that we come up against that seem to block us and, and make us feel stuck in our spiritual journey. You know, I've met a lot of people in the church and also out uh, in the community who feel like they want to give their life to Jesus and they want to have that daily experience with him, but they find something inside of them that's even resisting that closeness with Jesus. So that's a little bit of what we're going to talk about today. And then tomorrow is entitled, the, or this afternoon is entitled, The Wounded Healer. And we'll take a journey through our own lives as well as the life of Jesus to see how Jesus not only suffered, but he intentionally suffered everything that you would go through because he knew the challenges that things would face, you would face in your life. That's tomorrow. And then our um, session on Friday morning will be about how to share the message of a wounded Savior with others and how to minister to others. Because um, I come from a background of Bible work and uh, teaching evangelism. And in that background, I meet hundreds and thousands of people. And as I do, every single person has some kind of brokenness in their life some kind of experience that has been designed by the enemy to be a barrier between them and having faith in God. And so Friday morning is going to be about how to reach out to people who are hurt and how to reach the hearts of people. I want to welcome you this morning. Uh, My name is Annie Morgan, and uh, you probably saw my family with me. My husband, David, is a pastor and evangelist. And then I'm blessed with two little boys, Caleb and Joshua, that I pray will be uh, faithful and be in God's kingdom, and we're expecting another one in the month of May. So we're a, we're a busy little family, and God has blessed us in many ways. I also speak to you as one who has um, been at the low points in life when I wanted to take my own life and didn't think there was a reason to get up the next morning, at least not a good reason. And so many of the things that I will be sharing are not only from my experience in working with people, but also from my own journey and the struggles that I have faced along the way. So I want you to know this morning that if you ever get discouraged, if, you, if the flicker of hope in your life is ever running a little bit low, that you're in good company. Jesus has faced the trials that you face. And there are other people that have been down that pathway and who have fought against despair. And Jesus has lifted them out of that. And that's the life that we now live. And it's a a daily journey. But we have Jesus' promise to be with us every step of the way. Amen? So this morning, how many of you would like to live on E? What does it mean to live on E? Our conference theme is, Fill Me, Our Earnest Plea. Now, in order to be filled, you must first be empty. How many people like to be empty? All right. I I appreciate the hands that are going up. And even if your hand goes halfway up, I don't know. That's okay. Let's begin with prayer this morning. 
Our loving Heavenly Father, I want to praise you for the, the bumps in the road because they knock us down to our knees. I want to thank you so much, dear Jesus, for the blood stains that we see along the way, reminding us that Jesus has walked this pathway before us. He has pressed down the thorns that wound our own feet. He has smoothed the pathway for us, and we want to thank you for that. Dear Jesus, I invite you to take control of this seminar. I invite you to do what you want to do with it. You know our hearts. You know the desires that we have. You know the capacity that you've put within each one of our hearts to know and experience Jesus. We also recognize that there's an enemy who has been on our heels and uh, around us trying to prevent us from having the walk with Jesus that will truly satisfy the desire of your heart and our heart for fellowship with Jesus. Thank you for this conference. I pray that today will be a meeting place between Jesus and us and that today we will see more and more of the love that you have for us and the great potential that is just on the other side of the step of faith. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Living on E. Have you ever been deathly afraid of something only to realize that the very life you're longing to live is just on the other side of that fear? Has fear ever held you back from doing something? Have you ever been like right on the edge of doing something, but then you hesitate? How would you feel if you were driving down the highway and you saw this sign, no services ahead, pavement ends, next service is 126 miles, and you look at your gas gauge. Now, if your gas gauge says that your car tank is on full, how would you feel about that? <sighs> confident. I like that word. You could feel confident. You could sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride, correct? Because your tank is full. If you saw that sign and your tank was, a, was just under uh, halfway mark, what would start to take possession of your mind? A desire to fill up. Okay, now what if this is what your tank read? <laughs> what if the gauge on, on your gas tank's capacity read E and below? Okay, you would definitely feel the great desire to fill up, and would that take control of your life? Yeah. One of our greatest fears is emptiness. We don't want to have an empty gas tank. We don't want to have an empty love life. We don't want to have an empty um, career. We don't want to have empty hours in our day. We don't want to have emptiness in our life because it makes us nervous. We like to fill our life with something, don't we? But you know, one of our greatest desires is to have fullness. And we're going to look at the different uh, tanks, if you will, that are in our life. There are some different tanks in our life. And there's one that's very important to experiencing the fullness that God has for us. One of our greatest desires is fullness. So what do we spend all of our time doing or most of our time doing? Filling our lives, exactly. We're spending most of our time and most of our energies and most of our mental attention on filling up. And that's good. But I want to tell you that life with Jesus, true life with Jesus begins with an empty tank. And so there are going to be circumstances in your life that are going to bring you to that point of emptiness. That point when you bottom out, that point when it's just not working, that point if you like an organized life, that point when all is chaotic. 
If you like to have people around you, you're going to have that point when everyone seems to be gone and you're just alone with the four walls around you. You're going to meet up with an experience in your life that feels so incredibly, desperately empty. And you're going to want to run for all of your life to a filling station. And all the while, Jesus is going to be right there. That is the meeting place between God and man. The meeting place between God and man is the point of emptiness in your life. And like I said, it's a different experience for each one of us because we, we have our favorite filling stations. You know what I mean? We have our favorite things that, that, that make us feel satisfied or content or happy or at peace. And so the different empty spots in our life where Jesus wants to meet with us can be completely different. For one person, it might be the loss of a pet because their whole life revolved around that pet. For another person, it might be a financial crisis. But whatever it is that brings you to your knees and brings you to that place where you feel oh so desperately empty, that's the place where Jesus wants to meet with us. Because true life begins spiritually with what? An empty tank. And and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I know that in your experience, you've gone through that point in your life, you are going through it, or you will. Because Jesus so desperately wants to meet with us. And he knows that he cannot do what he wants to do and what we want him to do until our tanks are empty. And that means that we have to get through, you know, like the full tank and then the half-empty tank and then at approaching E, we have to go through that journey in our life where we, we feel the approach of bottoming out. We feel the approach of losing the things that we have clung to in our life. Now, I want to go back and do a little history. We made the statement that all true life, spiritually, begins with an empty tank. And I want to share with you from the book of Genesis what to me is an absolutely fascinating study from the Bible, fascinating study from the Bible, of how all life began here on this earth. All life began here on this earth with a state of confusion, chaos, and emptiness. And if you look with me in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2... It says, the earth was without form. Now, please give me some synonyms for without form. Please give me some other words that would state the same thing. Say again? No shape. Thank you very much. Anything else? What was it? Okay. All right. Chaotic? Confusing? Formless? What about lacking identity? Having no definite identity. Have you ever had a time in your life when you didn't know what you were going to do with your life? Maybe you didn't know what career path you were going to choose. You didn't know who you were going to marry. You didn't know what kind of ministry to be involved in. You didn't know where God wanted you to live. Did you ever have a time in your life when it was confusing? It didn't have that definite shape. You know, I can sink my teeth into this. I can can grab a hold of this, this life and I can go live it. Uh, you know, a, a time when you feel like you're driving through the fog and you're just really not sure of the direction of your life. Well, Jesus describes the world at the beginning as without form. And so there are times in our life when God wants to work a work of recreation and he wants to change us and he wants to give us that identity in him, an identity of walking with him, not a self-sufficient identity, but an identity with him. But before he can do that, we have to live on E. Before we can have the identity that Jesus wants us to have, we have to lose our own identity. There's a beautiful illustration of this in nature. Have you watched a caterpillar spend its life crawling around eating leaves? Whew, pretty happy life, huh? 
Is there something better for that caterpillar? Yeah. But before that caterpillar can become a butterfly and break loose and fly free, it has to actually dissolve within a casket of the chrysalis and become liquid. Do you ever feel like you're falling apart on the inside? Like your life is just shapeless and dissolving? That's what the caterpillar has to do. And from that, without form, from that shapelessness, God begins to form the intricate beauty of a butterfly that can fly free. What does it begin with? Living on E. Okay, so the first definition of the earth at the beginning, where true life on this earth began, was that it was without form. What's the next word that I have in red here? Void. Please give me another word for that. Empty. All right, living on E. Empty. So this world at the beginning, at the very beginning of creation, when God stepped into the world and said, I'm going to do something that's never been done before. This is going to be the masterpiece of my creation. It began with that powerful word, void. It began with the emptiness. So if you've lost a relationship, if you've lost something near and dear to your heart, if things are becoming more and more empty in your life, you are approaching that very critical tipping point where you can step out of life as you know it and into the life of a butterfly to fly free with God. And that's what I want everyone to get this morning is, is the inspiration to say, wow, I want to live on E because that's the place where God wants to meet me. As a result of being without form, having the chaos or the lack of purpose, direction in our life and being empty, we see that darkness was upon the face of the deep. Have you seen darkness on anyone's face? Yeah. Have you had it on your own face? Have you looked in the mirror in the morning and said, "Ah, where's my smile? Where did it go? All right. This describes the earth at the beginning. All true life begins with an empty tank. All right. Now, here is something that I hope will stir your heart with just a little taste of God's love for you. How did God respond when he looked out in his vast, wonderfully organized, wonderfully beautiful universe as he looked and he scanned through space and then his eyes zeroed down in on this one place that was without form and and void, empty? How did God respond? Did he say, oh, that's one of those hopeless places? Did he say, oh, that's that? No, they'll never get their life together. That's the one embarrassment in my universe. Now, I say these words because these are the words that we take into ourselves as our thoughts about God sometimes. We think, ah, there's someone flying free. There's someone going places for God. But, you know, me in my little corner, I think I'm in God's blind spot. You are not in God's blind spot, I guarantee What is God's response to this empty, chaotic place in his universe? And the Spirit of God, what's the next word? Moved. Have you ever thought that you needed to come to Jesus? Have you ever thought that you needed to to climb, I mean climb way up there? Have you ever thought that? That before he would talk to you, there was something that you needed to do? Now, Now, yes or no, do we need to come to Jesus? Yes. But as soon as we we get off of of wherever we are and we turn and we come to Jesus, what do we see? He is coming to us. He is meeting us. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And I want you to see what kind of attitude God has toward us when he moves toward us. 
And I take this from Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. It says, Jesus went forth and he saw a great multitude. But you know, when Jesus saw great multitudes, he didn't see a mass of people. He saw you and you and you and you. He saw people as individuals. And he saw our life just open to him. It wasn't hidden behind all the masks we wear. He could see deep into our souls. He can see the empty place. He can see the place that's chaotic where we don't have direction in our life. So it says, Jesus went forth and he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion. So whenever your life approaches E, whenever you have that chaotic state in your life, lacking direction, whenever you're feeling that lonely emptiness in your life, you can know that something is, someone is stirring in heaven. In fact, his heart stirred for you a long time ago because he saw you before you were born. And he is already on the way. And as soon as you recognize, God, I'm on E. I'm empty. My tank is empty. His eyes will meet your eyes. And they will be eyes of compassion for you. He does not despise human weakness. He does not despise it when our life is all messed up. And you know what I'm talking about. We've all messed it up royally at some point in our life. He does not despise that. In fact, he's drawn like a magnet. Do you see these two magnets here? This one, I say, represents human beings and our great desperate need for God, our emptiness, our chaos, our confusion, our messed up state. And this represents Jesus, the blood of Jesus, and his sacrifice and death for us. And the closer we get to Jesus, the stronger is this magnetic attraction, the amazing ability for God to draw close, draw close to us. So Jesus, as he looks out across the universe, he is drawn magnetically through his love to the needs of human beings. So you can know that every time you begin to reach that bottoming out point in your life, that Jesus moves, he comes close, and he comes to you. Do you want your prayers to be answered? Do you want to prevail upon the Spirit of God to draw near to you? Is that your earnest plea for God to fill you? Do you want God to fill you? Be empty and know. Know that you know that you know that he will come. Praise God for that. What does it mean to be empty? In um, Review and Herald, December 22, 1885, it says, The wants of the soul. Are there some desires that you have? Are there some wants? some needs, some longings, some cravings in your heart. The wants of the soul are not to be supplied unless we do what? Unless we feel our need. Now, it doesn't, it's not fun to feel a need and not know how to satisfy it with our human filling stations. But that is that point when we're approaching E in our life. And then we ask for the things that we lack. So to be empty is to feel a need, a need for something. Dwight L. Moody says, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. And from uh, C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves, page 14, it says, Man approaches God most nearly when he is in one sense least like God, for what can be more unlike than fullness and need, sovereignty and humility, righteousness and penitence, limitless power, and a cry for help. And you know what I think of a cry for help? For some reason, it, it, it just wells up within me this, all the emotions that go with a cry for help. You know you're going under. You can't take it another minute. It's falling apart and you desperately need to keep it together. A cry for help is met by the limitless power of who? 
God, the one who moves toward us with compassion. Again, um, our whole being is one vast need, incomplete, preparatory, empty. Now, if we stopped there, we would be at the meeting place between us and God. But one of the things that I, I feel is very important in our journey to being filled with the Holy Spirit is to recognize the things that clutter our life. So it says that our whole being is one vast need, incomplete, preparatory, empty, yet cluttered. We have been to the human filling stations, crying out all the time, because the clutter doesn't work, does it? It doesn't satisfy. Crying out for him who can untie things that are now knotted together and tie up things that are still dangling loose. Are there some things in your life that need to be put together? Some things that need to be unraveled? Some relationships that need to be untangled? Some uh, questions in your mind that need to be settled? Jesus wants to help. Martin Luther says, God created the world out of nothing. And as long as we are not yet nothing, God cannot make something of us. And God, he has a bigger dream for you than you have for yourself. I mean bigger. He has a great, grand dream for you that lasts into all eternity. You are not an accident. You are by design of God, and he has a good plan for you. The plans that he has for you are good. The purest joy springs from the deepest humiliation. Have you ever been so deathly afraid of something, only to discover that the life you want to live is right on the other side of that fear? What does God do when we are empty? He moves, he comes, but I want to look at something else that he does. Remember the problems? Our life is chaotic. We lack direction. We don't know who we are. We're not sure what role we're supposed to fill in life or how we're supposed to put one step in front of the other, and we're empty. So what do you think God is going to do when he comes to our life? Do you think he's going to do something with the chaos and the identity issue? Yeah. Do you think he's going to do something with the emptiness? And as a result of that, do you think he's going to put the joy on our face? Yes. So Jesus, when he comes close to us, deals directly with these two issues that I want to present to you. These two issues continue to be the issues of life. Issues of identity and issues of meaninglessness, lonely emptiness in life. So let's look at the, at the days of creation. He's going to form the chaos. He's going to fill the emptiness. And as a result, he's going to light up our continents and make life very good, like he did in the beginning. So, here I have just a diagram of the days of creation. This is the first day, second day, third day, fourth, fifth, sixth, and then at the top, the seventh day of creation. What did God make on the first day? He made the light. Now, when, when you need direction and you're driving in the fog, and the fog lifts and you have light, does that help? It does. And so God gives us light. He opens our eyes to see things. Now, one of the dangers is when we open our eyes and God gives us light, we see ourselves. But you know who Jesus wants us to see? He wants us to see him. We forget to look at those eyes of compassion that have moved toward us because he saw our great need. And so the light comes. But I want you to see that God is doing something on on day one. He's dividing the light from the darkness. He's taking the 24 hours of a day, organizing it into a, a predictable pattern. Do you like your life to be organized? Jesus comes to our life, and one of the first things that he does is he begins to organize things in our life. He begins to show us right from wrong. He begins to put things in order. 
And we need to accept his authority to do that in our life, don't we? When we push God's authority aside and we try to make our own rules, we stay in chaos. And so we need to accept God's role in our life as an authority figure in our life. So he's doing the first work is he's dealing with that earth that's without form, the life that's without form. He's giving it shape, identity, purpose. And so on day number one, he divides the light from the darkness. So now you have the evening and the morning. We have system and orderliness in the universe. Day number two, what does he do with the water that was just vaporous all over the place? Yeah, he makes, he makes the sky up here, the waters above, and then he makes the seas and the oceans and the rivers. He begins to, to organize the earth into system and beauty and organized shape and form. And then he takes the dry land, he puts it here, the water here, and by the end of the third day, you have the plants growing on the dry land, you have the water over here, you have the sky up there, and, and the earth down here, you have the day and the night. Has God put system and order into the universe now? Yes, in the first three days of creation, he does that. But I want you to imagine, does anyone here like looking at the stars? Oh, I love the stars. There was a time when I didn't. I hated it. I hated looking at the stars because I just, I just felt so much more empty then. But I love it now. And looking out at the stars, I want you to imagine if you went out on a starry night and there wasn't a star out there. No moon, no stars, just vast emptiness. And if you looked up in a tree, there were no birds singing. You looked down in the depths of the ocean, went scuba diving or something, and there was nothing, no life, nothing. It would be an organized, clinically correct world, but it would be empty. And so God wasn't done yet. God not only sees our chaos, he sees our emptiness. And so the next thing that God comes to do in the work of creation, which is an illustration of recreation, is that he fills the earth. So, on day number four, what does God do with the sky, the night sky and the day sky? He fills it with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Beauty, absolute beauty that can draw our minds to God. What does he do with the, with the seas on the fifth day? He fills them with the fish and the animals, the sea creatures. What does he do with the, the sky? He fills it with the birds that make life so happy and, and remind us of God's love for us. And what does he fill with the dry land and the trees with? Animals. What does God fill his own heart with? With you. Do you realize that? Have you ever taken that? Have you ever sat on the edge of the ocean and tried to soak that thought up? That God created his own heart with you? We are the first created beings made in the image of God with a capacity to understand God's thoughts, with a capacity to enter into his purposes and actually join in fellowship with him, to sit on his throne with him, God created us for him. And in this very statement, the fact that he made us in his image, we see, we begin to see our purpose, our identity. And you can come to the place in your life where you can spend every moment of every day with Jesus and realize that life is complete. That is the purpose for which God created you. But getting from here to there requires that we recognize who we are, empty. 
We have to approach that emptiness in our life. We need an empty tank so that we can connect with him. Now, what about the seventh day of creation? What, if you would tell me in a couple words what God created on the seventh day of creation, what would you say? Peace. Thank you. Anything else? Rest. Thank you. What did he make on that day? What did he give us on that day? Rest. Sabbath. Time. Relationship. Did he give us the gift of his undivided attention? Did he give us the gift of himself on that day? Of course he walked and talked to them in the cool of the other days. But this was that time for us and our Creator. Why would Jesus give that to us? You know, many people would say, well, in the first six days of creation, God made everything. But was there still an emptiness in the universe at the end of the sixth day? Where was the emptiness now? It wasn't out in the sky. It wasn't in the depths of the sea. Where was the emptiness on the, on the end of Day six, yes, thank you. The emptiness was in here. There was still a hole in the heart of Adam and Eve at the end of the sixth day of creation. And that hole in the heart, which represents the inside, the, um, the part of our life that controls us, that inside part of man's existence was still empty. It was still void. And so on the seventh day of creation, God filled the hole in the heart of man, the hole in the heart of woman. And that is the very special rest that we can have on the Sabbath, is having Jesus at the center of our life. Now, I want you to see that this rest comes as a result of something very special that God has been doing through the days of creation. He's been meeting three human needs. Now, how many would would admit that we need stuff in our life? Do you need to breathe today? Do you need air? Yes. Do you need water to drink? Yes. Do you need food to eat? Yes. Do you need clothes to wear? Yes. Do you need a uh, um, shelter? Do you need a place to live? Yes. Is the stuff of life important? It is. It is a God-given need. So, in the first five days of creation, all the things that God was creating were, were meeting the God-given need for stuff. And it's okay. It's okay to need stuff. It's okay to recognize that that, that is a God-given desire in our hearts. But is that all there is to life? No. All right, so then on day six, God met our social needs, our needs for relationships. And he created us to live in social units, the family unit, the unit of the church, and we can look at various other social units that God created us to live in. Does God recognize that we have a real God-given need for relationships? Yeah. Is it okay to want to get married? Is it okay to want to have close friends? Is it okay? Yes, it's okay. Is it okay to be content if you're not too? Yes, it's okay. And we're going to look a little bit more at why later. But God created us with a God-given need for people in our life. And so through the days of creation, God has been meeting these different needs. Well, there's going to be three that we look at. The first one is the need for stuff. I'm obviously using a very simple term here, but, but the stuff of life. The second great need is a need for people relationships in our life. And, and I have it visualized in circles here because our need for stuff is not as important and not as deep as our need for relationships. And then as you see in the, in the diagram there, there's a, another need that is at the heart 
of who we are as human beings, and that's our need for God. So at the end of day six, how many of these three needs have been met? Two of them. Now on the seventh day of creation, God gives us himself. He gives us the blessing of fellowship, of walking and talking, in intimate communication with our Heavenly Father, with the Creator of the universe, and that one-on-one with Him, that fellowship with God, that closeness with God that every one of us wants to have in our life. He gave us that on the seventh day of creation. Now, I want to suggest to you that the reason, one of the reasons why the Sabbath represents rest and peace is because it's not until God takes up occupancy in our heart that we have peace. We will be restless. We will be searching until Jesus is in our hearts. Now, as long as our life is centered on the stuff of life and the people of life and the relationships of life, and that takes a higher priority than Jesus, we will not have rest, we will not have peace, and the Sabbath will simply be a doctrine something we do and believe in our head but do not experience in our life. The Bible talks about a rest that some of us haven't entered into, doesn't it? For those who have read that in Hebrews. There is a rest that still remains for us. Now, the result of God's creation, the seven days of creation, are what I like to call a seven-penny life. And I, I almost got enough pennies so everyone could have seven pennies and actually do this. But you've got seven fingers, right? <laughs> seven fingers. Anyway, if you would picture seven pennies, I want you to take six of them and put them in a circle. You can have a circle of six pennies, and it makes a nice circle. There's an exact shape of one more penny in the middle. And so when God made everything, and he saw the emptiness, he saw the lack of identity, he saw the confusion in this one place in his universe, he took care of all of those needs. The six pennies represent the stuff of life and the people, human relationships. But whenever you have six pennies in a circle, you're going to have a hole in the middle. And so God on the seventh day of creation gave us himself to fill not our spare time, not our recreational time, but to fill the center of our life. And so as we see the center of our life here is represented by Jesus in our hearts, and that is the Sabbath rest that he wants us to experience. Now, it's really interesting that if you would just trace a line around this, you would come up with the shape of a hexagon. The hexagon is considered, of all the shapes found in nature, to be one of the strongest structures. And you can look at some examples of this. The um, honeycomb, um, the, the patterns on the back of a turtle. Let's see. Got some other ones on here. Oh, where am I going here? It decided to do a real leap all the way to the end of my presentation here, but we'll get it back on track here. All right, here we go. Okay. Here we have the honeycomb, and it's going to be um, the actual shape of um, the geometric shape of a snowflake, and a few other examples here of the, um, this shape in nature. But the thing that's interesting about it is this particular shape is very strong, very stable. Now, I want you to think about the restlessness of a life of searching 
compared to the stability and the strength and the rest that we have when Jesus takes up residence at the center of our heart. So when you have all seven pennies, what happens to the hole in the middle? It is filled, filled with Jesus. He takes up the center place in our life. He becomes a priority in our life. And look at the result of it. There's a stable, strong, secure life. These magnets here, this is forever searching. But when it makes that secure, tight connection with God, it is no longer searching. It's no longer a free radical going around trying to, to attach and grab up other, other things to attach to. It no longer seeks the filling stations or the clutter of this life. And so there's a rest. And every time we make a surrender to Jesus, we experience a taste of the rest that can come when we give Jesus first place in our life. It's a peace. It's a rest. It's a, ah, it's a place called home. It's called belonging. It's called this is where I'm meant to be today in my life. So what, what, what went wrong back in creation? What went wrong after God made this perfect, stable, secure world? Did Adam and Eve make a choice? They did. The enemy came into the garden, and every time you have a paradise, every time you have a Garden of Eden, every time you have a new walk with Jesus, there is an enemy who comes. Have you felt yourself in the middle of a battle? Do you recognize that there's two forces pulling at you? Yes. Even when you come to that settled, secure state of restfulness and peace and surrender to Jesus, there will be a battle that breaks loose in your paradise, a battle that breaks loose in your heaven on earth. So what happened after that beautiful story of creation? And what happens after the beautiful work that God does in our lives? There's an enemy that comes knocking. And he waits for his opportunity to plant lies in our mind, to plant distrust of God. Now, what happens in a relationship when you have distrust? It's no good. Thank you. Can't say it better. The relationship crumbles, doesn't it? And you lose the preciousness and the and the the value that you had in that relationship when trust goes away. So the enemy came and he, and he talked to Eve and he said, did God really say? What's he planting in the mind? Doubt. And then he goes on to plant the idea that God has withheld something from them. He plants the idea that there's something that you want and need in life that will make you happy, but you need to get it on your own because God did not provide it for you. So he plants the idea that if you surrender to God and if you live life in full obedience to him, you're going to come up against something and go, oh, that's missing in my life. God, you withheld that from me. So he plants a distrust of God's love. And it's really interesting because as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, chose to walk out of that dependence on God and into a self-sufficient life, seeking to get their needs met, on their own, without God, they went back to the state, we went back to the state of the earth at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. So as you look around the world today, we see that life is without form. People, again, are confused, chaotic, disorganized, lacking identity, not knowing what direction to go in life. 
empty, lonely, meaningless, wondering where we are and, and if anyone really cares. And darkness is on our face again, isn't it? And throughout the world, depression is at an all-time high. People have lost the radiance and they're surviving, sort of, kind of, right? Surviving poorly. So we've made a full circle. After God did this beautiful work of creation, then, by a choice, we chose to distrust God's love, to question his ability to meet our needs, and we set out on a life of self-sufficiency which says, I'm okay, on my own. I can do it. I don't want anyone else to fix it for me. I'll take care of it myself. And I, re- I remember some, I was terribly self-sufficient, terribly independent. And God's been breaking me of that and breaking me of it and bringing me to that empty tank place so I can experience more and more of that love that he has for me when I can be vulnerable and dependent again. But I, and I'm going to see if you can relate to any of these things. You don't have to fess up to it. But I, even when I would get kind of low in my life and someone would go to give me a hug, I was kind of stiff and I didn't really want their hug. I was going to get my life together first. You know, on my own, right? And, and you know, when, whenever, whenever things were going good and I was, had some successes in my life, you know, I'd, I'd walk out there and, and everything was good. But whenever things were kind of falling apart in my life, I wanted to be by myself. Well, no, that sounds good, right? Take some time alone and, and get things figured out. But for me, the motivation was, I don't want anyone to see this part of my life. We get really independent, really self-sufficient on our own. And Adam and Eve did that. And so there's this equation here, without form and void equals darkness upon the face. We're never happy like that. We're very lonely. And of course, this describes most of us today in the journey that we're in. I want to illustrate it like this. When God created the world, he made us like a water bottle. This water bottle has the shape of a what? It's not a trick question. It's just the obvious. A water bottle. Thank you. (laughs) This water bottle has the shape of a water bottle. Okay, so does it have a clear identity and a clear purpose? Yes. When God made us, he gave us the shape of a God-shaped hole. For the purpose of his indwelling so that every moment of our life he could tell us that he loves us and that everything is going to be okay. That's the, every second of your life he wants you to live that identity. The identity of trust in him where he fills your life with his thoughts about you. Now how, how, how many of the minutes of your life do you live like that? I don't, I don't expect you to answer. But so much of our life we live with our mind, which I dare you to try to separate the mind from the heart. We live with our mind filled with thoughts such as, I'm not good enough for God. Others can do it better. I better work really hard because life is getting really chaotic. And just different thoughts. But Jesus wants us to have a clear identity as his son, his daughter, his bride, his messenger, his companion, his brother. I mean, he uses so many words in the Bible to try to, you know, grab our mind to pull us into that relationship with him. Okay, so at the end of the seven days of creation, here was the world. Clear identity. Now, is it full or empty? 
If you can't see it in the back, it's full. This water bottle is filled to the brim with water. But now when you go on a camping trip and you bring your water bottles and you go up to the high altitude where the, the views are just beautiful and you climb and you take your water bottles up there and you drink all the water, then at the end you have an empty water bottle. Now most of us have to go back to work on Monday morning, so we stick the water bottles back in our backpack or in the trunk of our car and we come down the mountain. Are you following the, the picture here? We come off of that high, if you will. We come down the mountain, and there's an interesting thing that often takes place in the water bottle. If you have the top on the water bottle, and you're closed up, and you've insulated yourself from, from being exposed, and you're, and you're um, safe within your own little world, you've got it all under control. If, you're, if you're, you know, your top is on real good, if this water bottle comes down from that high altitude down into the valley, something happens inside of it. There's a vacuum inside of this water bottle now. When it went from the high altitude to the low altitude, a vacuum, the, the change in pressure, created a vacuum inside of this. Now, this doesn't happen when you're full. When you go through changes and pressures in life and your life is full of Jesus... You don't have a vacuum in your life. Now, what else has happened to this water bottle? It's not only empty, but it is what? Can you see? It's distorted. Thank you. Any other words? Misshapen? Is it returning to that state of without form and lack of identity? Okay. And um, one gentleman in a class that we did, he said it's collapsed from the inside. Ah, that was an emotionally charged description for me. It was crumbling, it was, it was caving in on the inside. And the, the emptiness is what causes the identity to deform. And so this water bottle, because it's empty, is losing its shape, losing its identity. And so we see the change that took place as a result of the fall. Now, what is the big problem in this experience? What's the big problem? Well, where is it? It's spiritual, thank you. It's at the... I think someone said it at the heart. So the problem is in the heart. That's what controls our life. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. It's this emptiness that causes us to live not a seven-penny life, but a six-penny life where there's a hole in the, a hole in the heart, a hole in the middle. Very good. Thank you. Okay, so when we think that happiness depends on things and people and the stuff of life and the people of life and the relationships of life, and even without realizing it, sometimes our priorities reflect that. And we give God the crumbs. Now, I want to tell you that in our analogy of filling up your gas tank, this is like going to your own gas station, having your own little private supply of gas and filling up your tank, but then going to the gas station and topping it off. And so many times we come to Jesus cluttered with all of our busyness, all of our focus on the things and the relationships of this life. And then we sit down and we open our Bibles. And we say, I'm all yours now, God. But I'm pretty full. And we, instead of saying, God, I have no clue what to do. We say, you know, God, I figured out a lot of this problem. 
and I just need a little extra help now. And instead of saying, God, I am so lonely, I've got to have you in my life, or I can't make it another day, we say, well, I got to spend time with so-and-so today, and, you know, had a date with my boyfriend, and I had, you know, quality time with my kids and all these things, and now it's my time with you, God. And so I have a little bit of space left in my heart for you. And we settle for the experience of having Jesus take that little bit, just topping us off like an almost full gas can, with just needing a little bit more. And we try to squeeze God into that place in our life. But all the while, the clutter of our life fails to satisfy the emptiness of the hole in our heart. And so we continue to be restless. We continue to lack that peace in our life. Which one do you want to live? A seven-penny life or a six-penny life? Seven-penny, yes, me too. And we're going to take a five-minute break now. Please stretch, use the bathroom, get some water. And then when we come back, we're going to look at that edge of that precipice. We're going to look at what it means to take that step, that leap of faith. So please come back in five minutes and we'll continue. I want to welcome you back for our next session. We can begin to find our way back to our seats. I know, I know how far it is to the restrooms because I, before the class began, I went to try to find it. So it takes a while. It's hard to do it all in a five-minute break. But I want to welcome you back. Find a place. Get comfortable. Another stretch if you need it. I do want to let you know that we do have a booth. It's called the Gospel Net in the exhibit hall. And if you're interested in some resources, our time is so limited in seminars like this, but if you're interested in um, listening to more or pursuing these topics a little bit more, we do have some resources there that you can get. Also, if you attend this seminar, you can go to the booth and get a free DVD called The Breaking Point. And um, you're welcome to pick that up. Just tell my husband David there that you were at the class because otherwise it's $15. But you can get that DVD at the booth, the Gospel Net. It's actually right as you walk into the exhibit hall, it's, it's right there, so it's real easy to find. But I want to welcome you back and, and begin with another word of prayer together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for the plans that you have for us, plans for good and not for evil, plans to give us a future and a hope, plans to fill our life, Lord, with everything that we have ever wanted and everything that you have ever wanted, where we can enter into that peace and that rest, that place called home, possibly a home, a place called home that we've never even dreamed of before. But I thank you, Jesus, that it does exist. And in your love and in your power, we can have a walk with Jesus where we can live on E and love it, where we can bottom out and be empty as far as this earth is concerned, but have everything when we have Jesus. Please continue to bless us on this journey. Bless all of us, Lord, and the people that we touch and the, the, the um, influence that we have on the other people. Thank you, Jesus. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A stranger to the rescue. I want to I again return to that thought that we developed about living on E. Remember the full gas tank? You know, that, that felt good. There was a peace. There was a settledness. There was a contentment where you could sit back and, you know, turn the CD on and, and just go down the road, and life is good. But then as it gets below 
half the halfway mark and as it begins to approach empty, there begins to come that restlessness inside, that feeling of, you know, I just, I don't like this. My, my life is becoming empty and I don't like this experience. Now, as we begin to approach this in our life, and like I said, it's different experiences that bring us to that breaking point in life. It may be years and years and years of built-up loneliness. It may be years and years and years of just feeling like you're not accomplishing anything in life. Sometimes it builds over time. Sometimes it happens in one bang, you know, where maybe your family, your parents go through a divorce. Maybe you go through a divorce. Maybe someone is very close to you dies. Maybe you're in an auto accident and you lose um, your health or something happens. Sometimes it happens slowly and gradually. Sometimes it happens really fast. But you'll find this experience where life is not good inside, where that emptiness comes upon you. And you wonder, my life is falling apart. What do I do? At this point, there is that big leap of faith, that big step that we have to take. Now, I say it's a great big step because that's the way it appears in our mind. It's the step of surrender. It's the step of completely, totally being okay with not knowing what to do. Being okay with being alone. Being okay with chaos. Being okay when everything falls apart around us, whatever that everything is in your life. When you lose a dream, when you think something's going to work out and it all falls apart. When everyone is going on with life and you feel like the little tiny boat that's been let down from the great big ship and you're out there battling the storm alone. When you're in these places in your life and the loneliness just suffocates you. These times in life when it's so meaningless that it drives you almost to distraction. Where all you can think about is you just, well, you can't think. When you get to these points in your life, there's a very quiet knock. Jesus is coming close. But the experiences, the human experiences, the experiences of this life have been designed by the enemy to paint a picture of God that is not safe. They've been calculated by the enemy to talk to us at that critical point when we could surrender to Jesus, where we could get into that chair and just just be there with Jesus. The thoughts from the enemy come at that point, and they say, you won't be happy if you give your life to God. You'll lose everything if you give your life to God. You won't, it won't work out. And all these thoughts will crowd in your mind, and you will think to yourself, I don't know God, and I can't trust him. And that's why it will feel like a huge leap of faith. That's why it feels like such a leap of faith. And I want to intersperse a few experiences of my own here, just to make it real to life, something you can touch and feel and, and, and know this is, this is real stuff. One morning I got it for my devotions. Now, at this particular time in my life, I was, had a really busy life, well, that's been always, but you know how it is. Uh, this particular time, it seemed especially intense, and I knew that I needed to spend time with Jesus. So I would get up in the morning, and I would have my prayer time, and I would open my Bible, and I would read. 
And it was usually pretty good because I was like, wow, I could share that with somebody in my Bible study with them. That's really good. Or that really, you know, that's really interesting about the Sabbath. Or that's, and I would find these great things in the Bible. But I didn't realize that I wasn't letting Jesus soak into my heart. So this one morning I was reading the story of the woman who was caught in adultery and brought and thrown at the feet of Jesus by the religious leaders who were actually the ones who drew her into sin, but because of their fig leaves of professed religion, they took this woman and they threw her at the feet of Jesus. And they said, what do you say? The law says that she should be stoned. Now, what do you say? And it had nothing to do with bringing her to Jesus to get help, did it? It had everything to do with their hatred for Jesus and their hatred for God's law. And so they throw this woman at the feet of Jesus. And there she is. She's not even, she doesn't even feel like she can lift up her head and look at Jesus. She's buried. She's, she can feel all of her accusers around her. The memory of what they've done to her is fresh and vivid in her mind. And she's there like a, like a puddle, if you will. Her life has just collapsed with shame and guilt for things that other people did to her. But you know, when people do things to you, it affects you in a way that you feel you've done it to yourself. We usually take on guilt and responsibility for the things that even others have done to us. And so she's crumbled at the feet of Jesus. She's not looking at Jesus. All she hears is the words of the people around her. And so there she is. So I begin reading this story. And God was doing his part to make the story really vivid and alive to me. The strange thing, though, was that I identified with the story way too much. So at that moment, I felt like that woman. I felt like that, and I didn't even want to look up. I didn't even want to take the chance to see how God would view me at that moment. And so I thought, that was a good devotional reading, and uh, that was good, and I jumped up off my feet, and I went to, you know, grab a couple things and go out the door and go to work. Now, does anyone want to tell me what I was doing? Avoiding? Thank you. Running? All right. Well, I read my Bible. I prayed that morning. I got a good illustration to help hurting people. Why didn't, why didn't, why shouldn't I get up then? I, I did apply it to my own life. I knew it was about me. I'm just, you know, we're going back and forth here, you know. And so here I was, and at that moment I was, I had things to do. And in fact, I looked at my watch, and sure enough, I needed to be there. And so I get up off of my knees, and I head out, and I don't get past my bedroom door, and I hear this still small voice, which I like to say is a knock. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus wants to come. Remember, he's that magnet that moves with compassion and comes close to us when we're falling apart and when we're not happy. He sees, he knows, he cares, he has compassion. And so I hear this voice that says to me, stay. You know, stay. I have two little boys, and sometimes I say, stay, you know. <laughs> I mean, you're not getting up and running around right now. And so in God's fatherly care for me, he says, stay. And oh, I, can, I can't describe to you the emotions that I felt inside of myself right then. I was like, I can't stay. It seemed humanly, emotionally impossible for me to stay. I had to get out of there. Why? Because I saw God as someone that he is not. 
that leap of faith, the ability to live on E, depends on our ability to trust. And I, I just praise God. There have been many times that I've run, but I praise God that I listened that time, and I came back, and I wrapped that afghan around me, and I got back in my, in my place of study and prayer, and I said, okay, what, what for? What do you want me to stay for? And I went back to the Bible passage, and I read how it went down, it went down, and it went down, and I was identifying with it even more now because I was more willing. More willing. I had given in to God a little bit here. I was more willing, and so I'm identifying more and more, and I get to the point where it says, when there was, um, I'm paraphrasing, forgive me for that, but when there was none other but the woman and Jesus and all of the accusers had left, why did they leave? Jesus told them to go, right? <laughs> Not so many w- words, but he wrote in the sand. And they saw their guilt, and they didn't want to be exposed, so they ran, didn't they? And I could have run, too. I was very close to it. And so I read that, and I, when it was none but the woman, Jesus said to her, Where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. And at that moment, a personally life-changing truth about God's word came to me. And that was that when I have totally, completely messed up my life and I have blown it and I am guilty and ashamed and don't even want to look at him, he says, Annie, I love you. I do not condemn you. What does Jesus do with chaos and emptiness in our life? He draws close to it with a yearning, longing, compassionate desire to share himself with us. And I, you know, for, for all of my life, I will remember those next few moments of fellowship with Jesus where he told me the truths that I needed to know about his love. And he changed me from the inside out. A friend of mine said, you may not be able to regain your virginity, but you can regain your purity. You can become a woman or a man of, of virtue and purity. You can have a new life. And that's some of what we're going to talk about tomorrow the new life that we can have in Jesus when we meet Jesus and he gives us his love. And so at that moment, God created purity inside of me. He took the shame and he took the guilt and he gave me himself. But what did I almost do? I almost ran away from it. There was a woman who was driving down the interstate and she was in a car driving down the interstate and she was just going along at a normal speed, caught up in her own thoughts. But she became aware of the fact that there was a tractor-trailer semi-truck that was right behind her and seemed like everywhere she went and every turn that she made, the tractor-trailer semi-truck came right on her heels. And she noticed that it was really bearing down on her and that it was driving really close to her. And you can imagine the panic that that started to take possession of her. Fear gripped her. And so she drove faster and the truck drove faster and, and she got ready to take the exit and she took it as fast as she could and she pulled into a a poorly lit gas station parking lot only to realize that the tractor-trailer semi-truck was right on her heels. It screeched to a halt behind her. The driver jumped out of the vehicle, came to her door, and stood there, and he pointed a gun in the back seat of her car. And at that moment, fear is a lame word to describe what she felt. The fact that it was pointed at the back seat didn't reassure her very much. And and after a moment, the man said to her, the truck driver said to her, Ma'am, I am so sorry to frighten you, but I watched a dangerous person enter the back seat of your car, and I have followed you to keep you safe. It is so hard to take that leap of faith to trust in God. But 
even though he looks like an enemy because of what Satan has done through our earthly experiences to paint a picture of God, even though he looks like an enemy, he is our Savior. And so this lady was rescued by a a stranger. Why is it so hard to trust God? Why is it so hard to live on E? Well, if you're going to live on E, you don't have within yourself the resources. You can't make people love you, can you? And you can't make more money come in. You can't make your life go better. You're all out of control, and what is the only thing you can do? Trust somebody else? Ah, I can't do that. Have you ever said, I can't? Have you ever stood like this? No, I can't do it. You know, and you just get right on the, I can't do it. You know, but the greatest fear of your life is the, is the breaking point to a new life. That little caterpillar that lives that humble life of eating leaves, crawling around. I'm sure if you asked it, if it wanted to dissolve into liquid, and stop being a caterpillar, it would say, no, I'm a caterpillar. I like being a caterpillar. But that's what has to happen in order to become a, a butterfly. Exactly. And all true life begins with an empty tank. But the empty tank means I am at the end of my rope. I can't get from here to there. And the only way I'm going to do it is by trusting Him? I don't even know him. But we only get to know him by trusting him. So when you find that your life is at the edge of what you can do and the next step is impossible, do it. Stay. Like in my case, I needed to stay, didn't I? And my devotional time with Jesus a little bit longer. Sometimes it means go. And I have, I have been enjoying the, the experience of trying to break out into that life of living on E more and more and more. So when I hear that still small voice that says, tell that person that God loves them, I can't. Do it. And as you do it and you watch their eyes mist over, and you see them look back at you and say, I needed to hear that. You begin to live the seven-penny life with Jesus in the center of your life living through you. And you get a little taste of what it's like to live on the edge. Because I was at the edge. I can't talk to strangers, right? Okay? I can't tell a perfect stranger that, you know, that Jesus loves them. Or when you're sitting in construction, I was sitting in construction one day, and I looked down, and I saw the lady, uh, what do they call the, the folks that hold the signs? Anyway, she was standing there, and I looked at her, And I decided whether she was going to reject me or accept the gift that I had for her. And I I sized her up. She was very unfriendly to everyone. And I thought, you know, if I give her a religious book, she's not going to want it. So I thought, I'm not going to do it. Where was I standing? On that edge. At the I can't spot. Exactly. I'm living on E. I don't have what what I need to, to put myself out there to be rejected. And so, but then God said, do it. And that time I did it. I'm telling you, obviously, the times when I did it. (laughs) There's lots of other times I didn't do it, right? Because that's where the blessings are when we do it. And so I I gave her the book. It was at Jesus' Feet by Doug Batchelor. That's what I had. I handed it to her. Her face lit up. She said, thank you so much. And you know what I experienced at that moment? 
life on E, living on E, where that was beyond me. That was God through me, and that is the greatest craving of the human heart, is to feel God take possession of us and live and work through us. We want to feel God's presence. There's whole religious systems built on trying to give people that, that touch of God, that, that infilling of God, that experience. But you and I can have it if we'll step across that gap of having faith and trust in Jesus. So why? Why are we so scared? Why are we so afraid? Well, going back to Genesis with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve took the fruit of the forbidden tree, they were choosing to live life without God. They were choosing to take care of their own needs. They became self-sufficient, independent, and their minds changed. What changed? Their minds changed. Sin does that in our hearts. When we choose to live life by ourselves, we choose to sin. Sin changes our thoughts. The Bible even says that the wicked flee when no one's running after them. We run from our own shadow. We run from our fears. And the fears just multiply in the darkness. Without the light of God, our fears just multiply. So a change took place in the mind. When Adam and Eve sinned, they saw that they were naked. Their gas gauge was on what? They didn't have any clothes to wear. Their gas gauge was on E. And they didn't have any to put on either. What, what was Jesus offering them right then? If you want to look at the topic of righteousness by faith and what Jesus wants to do for us, he had a robe of righteousness for them, didn't he? But they had to realize that their robes were gone first. We have to come to God naked. Their gas gauge was reaching E where all human efforts were failing. They tried making the fig leaves. They tried running. They tried hiding. And what did Jesus do? God couldn't help it, right? Because he was moved with compassion and so jesus keeps coming he keeps coming he keeps coming and what did they think about their fig leaves now they thought they were pretty good for a minute right but now their gas gauge is on e there's no place to hide from god and so as god comes close their minds actually change where they once ran to god now they run from him and so whenever we focus our life like an idol on the things of this earth and the relationships of this earth, we put them above God. We allow the sinful thoughts of self-dependence and self-works and doing it myself to come into our heart. Our thoughts about God automatically change. And we will see him as an enemy. We will see him as someone who is unsafe. So fear took the place of love in the hearts of Adam and Eve. And it does that in our hearts, too. What is it that separates us from God? It's sin. Our iniquities have separated between us and our God, and our sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Now, the interesting thing is it doesn't say it hides God from you. What does it say that it hides? It hides his face from us. Now, you can see everything about a person except for their face and believe a lot of lies about that person. But when you see their eyes, you will know the truth. You will know God's love for you when you see God's eyes. And so sin, it doesn't hide God from us. We can still see God, but we don't see his eyes of compassion for us. And the eyes of God are so compassionate for us that we, we, don't, we don't even... Remember the woman caught in adultery? What did, she, what did she do? Did she look up? Did she see the eyes of Jesus at first? No. 
She knew he was there, but she didn't look up. She didn't dare to. She didn't want to take that leap of faith. So now the struggle begins for Adam and Eve. The Lord can do nothing toward the recovery of man until convinced of his own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency, he yields himself to the control of God. Now that takes trust because we're not just talking about going for a walk with God. We're talking about yielding ourselves to the control of God. And this means that we accept his authority in every part of our life. This means that we make some real surrenders to him. I remember I was claiming the promise of Jeremiah where it says, you will seek him and find him when you search for him with all of your heart. And I was every day spending time with Jesus. And and I was becoming very angry with God because the more I spent time in prayer and Bible study, the less he seemed to be real to me. And one day I was talking, I was praying, and I was at the beach, and God said, you haven't been seeking me, you've been seeking things from me. You see, I was just asking God to give me the relationships I wanted. I was just asking God to fix the things in my life. I was just asking him to do all these things, and all that time I wasn't seeking him. And so the real seven-penny life, that hexagon, that stable, secure, happy life where the Sabbath is a place of rest for us comes when we seek to know Jesus and we don't care about anything else. That's all we want. And it means completely giving up our life to him where we give him the keys, where we turn it over and we say, God, I'm willing to marry him. I'm willing to not marry him. I'm willing to have this opportunity. I'm willing to not have this opportunity. I'm willing to be alone. I'm willing to be in a crowd. I'm willing to be healthy. I'm willing to be disabled. I'm willing to have you heal my seizures. I'm willing to live with the embarrassment of it. Coming to that point when you're willing to do whatever he asks of you, knowing and trusting that the very struggle will be what bonds you to Jesus and ensures you a place in his kingdom where everything will be good. This life is very temporary, very short and very temporary compared to eternity. And there's nothing that compares to have Jesus, to having Jesus in our heart. So that giving up of control, and I remember the next thing that Jesus said to me is, would you give me your dreams? So I was there at the beach, and I'm like, but this one you led me to, God. I see you're leading. I just know that this is your will for my life. You've planned it out. I see it working out. You've answered so many prayers, and so I know this is your plan for your life. So no, I'm not going to give that up, God. And God told me, write that name in the sand. Give that man to me. And you know what happens when you write a name in the sand at the edge of the ocean. A wave comes up, and the wave takes it away. said, okay. And it's that giving up of our dreams. It's giving up the control of our life. It's giving up everything that is so near and precious to us. Because the one thing you don't want to give up is the thing that you are putting in the center of your life. Now, you can give it to God and he can bring it back to you. If it's for your good. But if he doesn't give it back to you, if your son or your daughter is dying and you're watching them die, and you ask God to please spare their life, and they die, he'll give them back to you in heaven. But while you're on this earth, you can experience what it means to live on E. It hurts to lose someone. It hurts to have that place in your heart just torn out and be left empty. But tomorrow we're going to see through the wounded healer that Jesus suffered all those things 
And he can come inside and he can say, I'll cry with you. In fact, I'm crying before you cry. God's capacity for pain is so much bigger than ours and so much greater than ours that, that we, when we're tough, he's not. He's already crying your tears. There is not a tear that you cry that God doesn't cry with you. And so there is a place of bottoming out. There's a place of trusting God with every loss in our life where he can become everything to us. But if we cling to something, if we don't want to give up control, we will never experience what it's like to have him in the center of our life. And the things we hold on to are so subtle. Like I said, for me, it was, I saw you leading me into that, so I can't give that up. I can't give up the way you've led me. Sure I can. Because he's God and I I don't know everything, do I? That wonderful place of knowing he knows more than I do, and that's okay. So this says, The Lord can do nothing toward the recovery of man until convinced of his own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency. He yields himself to the control of God. Then he can receive the gift that God is waiting to bestow. Then we are empty with a capacity to receive God. From the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. Desire of Ages, page 300. True life begins with an empty tank. That's right. And so Adam and Eve, they hear the voice of God coming into the garden. Adam, where are you? And you know, it's not, Adam, where are you? What have you done? It's not that, is it? Adam, where are you? This was a time when they met and talked and walked together in the cool of every day. This was, this was God and Adam's time together. And Jesus wouldn't miss it for anything. And so he comes into the garden looking for Adam. And he doesn't, he, Adam is not greeting him. So why is it so hard to trust? Because when we have sin in our life, when we are self-sufficient and unwilling to surrender, it may not be something you can nail down like, you know, that you're involved in a particular sin. It's just that self-sufficiency of not wanting to surrender, living life without God. Their, their minds were changed. And so Adam and Eve, they run and they hid. Their minds had changed. They had fear instead of love. And so God is calling to Adam. And you know the first question he says is, where are you? It's not until God and Adam are face to face, eye to eye, and Adam can see God's love for him even now that he's blown it. Have you seen God's love for you when you fail? See, like me, many times we we sin, we mess up. We live life on our own, and then in our time with Jesus, we wait to really talk to God until we get it all together. And we miss out on the opportunity of seeing God's love for us when we are failures. It's that time when we say, okay, I'll look at your face, God. I know I've blown it. And really search through the Bible and take hold of the promises of how his compassions fail not, of how he doesn't treat us like we deserve to be treated. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. He loves us. He cares about us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. And so notice, God says to Adam and Eve, where are you? First, he wants to be face to face. He wants them to see his face. And when Adam and Eve can see his face, later on, he says, what is this that you have done? But when we've done wrong, we listen to the enemy. And the first thing the enemy says is, what did you do? First thing the enemy points to is our sin. The first thing that Jesus points to is his face. He wants us to see his love. So there comes that point for Adam and Eve where they need to bottom out. They need to repent. They need to turn from self-sufficiency, give up control to Jesus. 
and, and come to that place where they realize, I've blown it, I need Jesus. But at this point, that's that chasm where we stop and we say, I can't do it. It's too hard. No, no, not God, not surrender. I remember a dear friend of ours that actually lives in the Houston area, so we've been able to reconnect while we've been here. But one time, he was at the side of the road. His car engine had blown up. Uh, he didn't have money to buy another car. He had kids that were dependent on him. He was separated. But, you know, you can, you can imagine the stress that was building in his life at that moment. And so talking to him on the phone, my husband said to him, May I pray with you? Jesus can help you even though it looks like there's no way out. He has an answer. He can help you. I don't know what he's going to do, but he has an answer. And you know what the man's words were? I don't want God to fix it. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of us can relate to this more than we'd like. I want to do what? Fix it myself. And so we hesitate because to to let God fix it, we have to admit that we need him. We have to admit that our life is out of control and that we need him very much. And it's hard to let go of that self-sufficiency. So let's look at Genesis briefly and see the different ways that Adam and Eve responded. And um, we we move kind of quickly for the sake of covering material here. So you may want to look these up later. But um, in Genesis it says that Adam and Eve, their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. And so the first thing that Adam and Eve do when their minds are changed and their sin has entered their life, the first thing that they do is they look inward. Have you ever seen yourself? Have you ever looked at your own failures? Have you ever looked at the I can'ts in your life? Whenever you're looking at yourself, you're not looking at Jesus. The next thing that they do is they try to fix it. They found some fig leaves and they sewed them together and they tried to make some clothes. And trying to fix it means we do it on our own or we go to people instead of going to Jesus. And it's a six-penny life. The next thing that they do is they hear God's voice. Now, again, we've seen that instead of running to meet God, because sin has changed their minds, they run from him and they hide. So they run and they are afraid and and they're hiding. Do you have fear in your life? Do you run? Do you hide? Do you not want people to see who you really are? These things tell us one thing. They tell us that we're approaching empty. They tell us that we've pushed Jesus to the side and that we need him in our hearts. These are wake-up calls to remind us of how much we need Jesus. And then lastly, when all those things don't work, what do Adam and Eve do to each other? They blame each other. And you know, there's a, there's a tendency in the human heart to say, it's not my fault. And uh, if someone else, if someone else would do this and this and this, then I would be in a better circumstance in my life. When the root of the problem is separation from Jesus. We have the six pennies in our life, but there's a hole in our heart. And we need Jesus at the center of our heart if we're ever going to have the happiness. So what about us? Do we ever look inward at ourselves? Do we ever try to fix things on our own? Jack? check (laughs) you know i can relate to so much of this do we hear god speaking to us that still small voice and do we ever push it to the side i remember again i got to make it practical here i remember driving down the highway one time and i i was looking for direction in my life and i so i was asking god to speak to me and i had prayed many times and it seemed like it was just silence so i said you know dear god please speak to me why don't you speak to me and at that moment, I looked down at my, 
gauge on my car that told how fast I was driving. And it said 80 miles an hour. And it was a 65-mile-an-hour zone. And this little thought came into my mind, slow down. You're, you're speeding. And I looked around. I'm going with the flow of traffic. It's all right. I'm going with the flow of traffic. So I keep on driving. And you know what the next thought that came into my mind was? God just spoke to you. You didn't listen. And so I realized God was speaking to me, but I kept tuning him out. I kept tuning him out. I kept pushing him out in the little things in my life all the time saying, God, now tell me the big things. Talk to me. And so God, I think of it like a train. A train is barreling down the tracks in one direction. It's going, going fast. That's the little decisions we make in life, the little things, barreling down the highway. And then we're like, God, change my life. Show me which direction to go. God says, well, make a little turn here. No. Make a little turn here. No. You know, change this in your life. No. Take more time to study your Bible. No. You know, give up this, some of your commitments so you can make Jesus first. No. And so that train keeps going. Now, if we listen to those little things, God would be turning, 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 turning us until we would be in a totally different direction, full force for him. But we want him to just pick us up and turn us around and do the big things, right? But he guides us in the little moments with a still, small voice. That's that surrender. I wanted to go fast. At that point in my life, I always wanted to go fast because I was running. And I didn't want to be still. I didn't want to slow down. I didn't want to turn the music off. I wanted to keep going and keep it quiet in here because somebody was knocking and I was scared to let them in. And so there's so many different ways that we run from God, so many different ways that we allow that change in our mind to control us. And so how do we break out of this? What is God doing when we run? We just said it. Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He wants to come in. He's saying, do you trust me? Will you trust me? So where do we go when we're empty? Another experience that I have had is um, as a parent of small children, I I really value my quiet time, but I don't have much quiet time anymore because they get up early and they wake up at night and And so just when you sit down, you think you're going to have your devotions with Jesus, they wake up and things happen. And so I've I've just kind of settled for, you know, a Bible verse here and, you know, grab what you can. And I think it's like fast food. Never traveled and all you can get is fast food and it never really satisfies like a home-cooked meal. And I felt like spiritually I was doing that and so I was praying, God, you don't feel, it just doesn't feel like you're at the center of my life anymore. And this can happen when you're in college, it can happen when you're dating, it can happen when whatever is just consuming your life. And so I was praying and I said, God, how do I put you back at the center of my life? I need you for my children, not to mention myself. And God said, give me your me time. Me time? Does anyone know what me time is? (laughs) Well, I have a very precious little space in my day. It's not, right now it doesn't happen to be in the morning, even though if I get up early enough, sometimes it can be. But there is this time right after the boys go to bed. I have about 30 minutes, an hour, and I literally go, (sighs) and you know, I've got to recharge for the next day. And so this is what comes into my mind. You remember how the earth was without form? It wants to be organized. Well, immediately I say, 
if I can just get the house organized. And so I'll get up and I'll scramble and I'll, you know, finish up any little things so that the house is like this. And I go, ah. But you know what that's doing? That's going to an earthly filling station to feel like my life is organized. That's my me time. That's what I do with it. And then, of course, I have a, you know, I have a very child-centered world right now, which a lot of you can relate to and some of you can't. But, um, you know, it's also very interesting to check my email and get on Facebook because I get a little sip of social interaction, reconnect with people. Not feel, I mean, grown-up people, you know. <laughs> it feels good. And so I'll check my email and check Facebook. God said, give me your me time. Ah, that's where I was cluttering my heart, Right? I was cluttering my heart with my own attempts at organization. My own, and where was I putting it? First chance I get, I organize my house. First chance I get, I connect with people. But I was living a six-penny life, and then, ah, now I can talk to you, God. And I top it off with a little bit of God. You know, read a little Bible verse and things like that. But it wasn't getting to my heart because I was filling my heart up with my stuff already. So if you will pray honestly with God and ask him to show you where your me time is, you will probably find a little place in your life that's for you. That's where you do what you want to do. And it's very precious to you. Very near and dear to your heart. If you will give that up to Jesus, you will come to God thirsty. You will come to God hungry. You will come to him with the raw cravings of the human heart. You will come to him and find out what it's like to be filled. And I, rem- I the days that I say, it's all yours first. And I just, I let the house be a chaos. I let the, you know, let the people send the messages and I haven't read them yet. It's okay. And I sit down with Jesus and I have to take that big breath because it's hard to do. And I just go, and I spend that time with Jesus. My Bible study, my prayer time is so different from what it's like after I fill me up first. So who has your me time? Where do we go when we feel empty? Are we living a six-penny life or a seven-penny life? I'm trying to make it practical so that we can relate to it here. Six-penny life or a seven-penny life? Again, we're looking at why do we run? Why do we run? Sometimes it's because we have questions for God. I remember some questions I had for God about things that happened in my life. And I couldn't quite reconcile them. The God of love, this happened, this time of my life. Have you ever asked God why? Have you ever felt like he wasn't fair to you? Have you ever felt like he wasn't there? If you have any of those questions, please come tomorrow or stop by our booth and get the set of CDs called The Wounded Healer. I, I could care less about the CDs. I just want you to have the message, Okay. This message of the wounded healer changed my life forever. I had questions about God, and they kept me from ever surrendering to him because I didn't see that he was there when I needed him, just like my dad wasn't there when I needed him. And, um, you know, there's a whole story to each one of our lives. God abundantly satisfied that later, but there were times when I needed people and they weren't there. And that's okay because God was there, but I didn't see him. What does sin do do to our mind? I said, if my dad's not there, then I'm not going to trust you either, God. I didn't know I was saying that. But because of that, my idea of God was, I can't trust him. And so I never gave him the chance. Do you want to surrender, yet hold back? 
Are you afraid to live on E? If so, your life will forever have a hole in the middle and it will forever haunt you. It's like a magnet. It's really interesting to look at this magnet. Now, isn't this beautiful how God and human beings have the capacity to hold so tight to each other? I love it. And there's a magnetic drawing from God that draws us tight and close. It's our, our need for God and his great love for us can draw us close. Have you ever switched the polarity and tried to bring these two magnets together? Watch now. I am trying to force these together. What do you see? And I know you probably can't see it in the back, but I can't get these magnets to, to go together. The same magnetic need that we have for God, his same great, intense, compassionate love drawing close to us is repelling. It's pushing away. And this is what happens when we're self-sufficient, when we're living a six-penny life, going to the things of this world, and depending on human relationships instead of God. Our perceptions of God are so changed that the closer he comes, the harder we push him away. And I, every time I try to bring these close, they just... They slip. They go. And so the very power that can attract and bond us to Jesus can push us away from him if we do not surrender. So this is the all-important question. Do we trust God enough to live on E? Do we trust him enough to give it up? To give him up? To give her up? To give up that dream? And to just be empty. You know, in the story of creation, every single day of creation begins with let. That's our part. To be empty and then to let. Let what? Let him do it. To let. Let there be light. Let the dry land appear. Let. Are you letting God work in your life? That's our part. Are you wounded? Are you afraid? Isaiah 1 verse 6 says, From the sole of the foot even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds, bruises, and putrefying sores. Has somebody hurt you? Has somebody wounded you when you trusted them? Did you know that Jesus was wounded by a trusted friend? And the interesting thing about this verse is it says they... These wounds, these bruises, and these putrefying sores have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the wounds that come from neglect and abuse and how they stand as barriers between us and Jesus because they tell us you can't trust him. Remember last time you trusted? Remember last time you opened up to somebody? Remember last time... You let somebody do something for you, sure enough, here you are back at the same conclusion. If it's going to happen, it's up to me. Back in that self-sufficient trap that separates us from God and says you can't trust God. The wounds in our life, the experiences in our life set us up to fear God, to run away from him instead of running to him. I want to tell you another story about a woman. She didn't know how to swim. She was in a canoe out on a, a, quite a large mountain lake. So she's out there paddling, and she gets out into the center of the lake, and she see the, sees the storm clouds coming. And the storm clouds begin to get bigger and bigger, and then there's a few flashes of lightning, and the thunder comes, and a few raindrops. 
And it's one of those storms that just comes upon you fast. And before she knows it, she's in the middle. She's battling this really big storm. And the wind starts to whip the waves up. And her, and her canoe is starting to tip. She doesn't have a life vest on either. Is she on E? She's on E. And so as she goes through this storm, she's battling. And pretty soon her, her canoe tips over. And she's in the waters and she's about to go under. And at that moment, a flash of lightning opens up the sky and she sees a rough fisherman coming in a fisherman's boat, paddling to her as fast as he can. She sees him. His hair is long. He doesn't look very clean. He's rough looking. His clothes are tattered. She looks at him and she's more scared of him than the water for a minute, but she's about to go under. And a man calls out to her, hold on, I have a rope. And she battles again and she flails in the water and the rope comes to her and she sees the flash of his face again in the lightning and she thinks, I can't, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. But she's going under. Why does she grab that rope? Does she know the fisherman? Does she trust him? Does she know the fisherman? No. Does she trust him? It's okay. We're working out in our minds here. (laughs) She wants to. Thank you. Very good. Do you want to trust Jesus? She grabs the rope. Not a girl. (laughs) She grabs the rope and she holds on tight for dear life, even though she doesn't know him. He pulls her into his boat. She buries her face. She expects the worst. All the bad stories she's heard come to her mind. And she, she's aware that he's wrapping a rough fisherman's blanket around her and handing her a thermos of his hot drink. She takes the thermos. She sips a few sips. She's, uh, hypothermia is about to set in. She is cold. She shivers, but with the warm drink, and with the blanket around her, he puts his coat over her legs. She still can't look up. Finally, well, actually, before she realizes that they're at the shore, she steps out of the boat, and for the first time, she really looks. And beyond that rough exterior is the kindness of the most gentle man you would ever want to meet. She was saved by a stranger. God is trustworthy. You can give him your most cherished treasure. You can let it go. You can live on E. He will not fail you. But you have to take the step of trust. How will you trust him? How will you know him? Only by trusting him. And so when your life approaches E, and you find yourself losing, battling, facing the storm alone, the world caving in on you, when you experience all these things, you are approaching the greatest point in your life. The point, and there will be many over and over in life, the point of stepping into a trusting relationship with Jesus, where he can come inside. Now, you can have experience after experience after experience with God and still have an inner casket of fear. A place in your heart where you've been wounded and hurt, betrayed, rejected, abandoned, and still not let Jesus into that place. 
until you see him as the wounded Savior. And that's why our topic this afternoon, I probably keep saying tomorrow, but I mean this afternoon about a wounded Savior is so near and dear to my heart because that's what broke through my casket of fear and allowed me to let him in deeper into my life. Jesus knows. He cares. He not only sympathizes, but he's been through it himself. He feels it with us. He is trustworthy. But I guarantee it, he will look like a scary stranger at first. Many are inquiring, how am I to make the surrender of myself to God? You desire to give yourself to him, but you are weak in moral power, in slavery to doubt and controlled by the habits of your life of sin. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. You cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens your confidence in your own sincerity and causes you to feel that God cannot accept you. But you need not despair. What you need to understand is the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision or of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. The power of choice God has given to man, it is theirs to exercise. You cannot change your heart. You cannot of yourself give to God its affections. Have you ever thought, I'm just going to love God more? I'm going to trust him. But you can choose to serve him. And it's that still small voice that says, slow down. It's that still small voice that says, play with your kids now. It's that still small voice that says, it's the simple things. I remember one Friday when I had my to-do list and by noon I was going to have it all done because that was my plan. My husband said, let's go for a walk. I thought to my mind, no, it's really important to me for the house to be organized and the cooking to be done by noon. And, um, but God spoke to me. He said, go for a walk. I said, okay. We went for a walk, and he wanted to stop at this neighbor's and this neighbor's, and so we're ministering to neighbors. It's 11 o'clock when we get home. You know, God allowed me, helped me to do more from 11 to noon than I ever could have done from 9 to noon. Putting God first. Letting him have control of every little decision in our life. Yielding our will to him. Choosing. We have choice after choice after choice. Now, that morning I experienced what it was like to have a miracle because God did three hours of housework in one hour. That was a miracle, and I knew it. But would I have experienced that if I didn't choose to trust him? Our trust in God grows as we choose to obey, choose to obey, choose to step out of our comfort zone, choose to give it up. That was a cherished dream of mine that morning, to give it up, give it up. Give up control to Jesus, and our faith and our trust in him will build as we do it. You can give him your will. He will then work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. That's Steps to Christ, page 47. Have you ever felt like you were going to drop to your death? A man was obliged to descend into a deep well by sliding down a fixed rope, which was supposed to be of ample length. But to his dismay, he came to the end of it before his feet had touched the bottom. Living on E. What do you do? He had not the strength to climb up again and to let go and drop. And to drop seemed to him but to be dashed to pieces in the depths below. He held on until his strength was utterly exhausted and then dropped, as he thought, to his death. He fell. Just three inches. And found himself, what's the next word? Safe. 
the more desperate your situation is, the more you the more ready you are to experience the safety of God. He fell just three inches and found himself safe on the rock bottom. Are you afraid to take this step? Does it seem too sudden, too much like a leap in the dark? That's a question for us to ask. Where are we going with our emptiness? Where are we going with our needs? Are we trusting God to meet all of our needs, or are we trying to do it on our own? Have you ever been deathly afraid of something only to realize that the very life you're longing to live is on the other side of that fear? I want to close with a story, a personal experience that I had. I used to live in um, South Dakota and um, was friends with David Asherick and Nathan Renner. And some of you may know them and may know that they like to go rock climbing. And so I would go rock climbing with them. And one time we were climbing in the cathedral spires. Well... David went ahead, of course he's all geared up, and I'm attached to a rope that he leads ahead. Nathan went behind me, and so I'm covered ahead and behind, because I wasn't experienced at all. And so we begin to climb, and it's pretty neat, you know, to see how you can actually hold on to a tiny little crevice of the rock and stick your toe in here and, and, and make your way up this rock face that seems like nobody could ever climb up there. And so I'm feeling pretty good. We're doing, we're doing something pretty amazing here, you know. We're climbing, 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 and every now and again I look behind me and see that the view is getting better and better. And we get to the top of that particular climb, and there's a nice plateau there. And I, I stand up, and I look, and I take in the view around me, and it is just so awe-inspiring. Only those who have climbed or gone up in heights can appreciate how amazing it is to look just at the vastness of God's creation. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking. And I was just taking it all in. A few minutes later, I hear David and Nathan say, let's go. It's time to climb higher. You ever heard God say that to you? It's time to climb higher. I know you're comfortable here. I know you're rejoicing in what I already did for you. And I know you're liking your ministry and things like they are now, but there's more. So I said, okay, and made sure we checked all of our gear. I started walking, and they're over here. And I see the next climb we're going to make, and okay. I go over there, and I kid you not, it's from here, about three rows back, is this chasm, this drop-off. I mean, it goes down, who knows how many feet, way down. And I've got to get from here to there. And I look at them, and I wonder, what are we doing? And uh, I said, where do we go from here when they're like over there? I cross that, and um, I begin to freeze in fear. And I couldn't figure out how in the world I was going to get from here to there. I mean, I'm short, you know. How am I ever going to make that leap? And I said, how are we going to get across? And I said, we're going to jump. I said, you're going to jump. (laughs) You're going to jump. And um, I said, well, you're going to jump. I can't. Frozen, paralyzed by fear. Stuck. And so I stood there. And so David said, well, here's how it works. I jump first. I'll have the rope that you're attached to. I'll give you enough slack. You jump next, and Nathan will be behind. We'll tighten the rope, and if you don't make it, (laughs) we'll pull you the rest of the way across. And so I'm thinking about that if I don't make it moment. I don't know how long they waited for me, but they had patience, great patience. 
And you know, God is very patient. He, God, God, God's uh, character flashed through those two men that day. <laughs> and God is very patient. I don't know how long they waited, but it was absolutely humanly impossible for me, as much as good of friends as I was with David and Nathan, it was impossible for me to trust my life with them, <laughs> I felt like. But, and I don't know how, but the power of the will. God has, God has won that back from the enemy. He has given us the power of the will. He will strengthen our will. And I chose to jump. I still don't know how because I don't know if I could do it again. <laughs> but I jumped, and it, as I'm jumping, they pulled the rope. And so that propelled me the extra three feet that were humanly impossible for me to do. And so my feet landed on the other side. Could I do it? No. Did I do it? With their help. We can't do it without God. We will fall to our death. But with God, he makes up the difference. When we truly give him control of our heart, we can trust him to do what is humanly impossible for us to do. Now, I got on the other side there. We got on the other side. I can't take credit for it. So now, And then Nathan jumps over. And so we're on the other side, and we make the next climb. And when we get to the top, the real top, the higher ground, I stood there, and I just had that sobering moment of thinking, what, what a shame. Oh, I forgot to tell you. I told them I, I quickly thought of a plan. Human beings think of wonderful escape plans. Before I made that jump, I said, hey, guys, you go up there. I'll stay here, and when you come back down, just pick me up here, and I'll go down with you. You, you came up with that plan, too? Good. <laughs> okay, so that's what I, that was my plan. I'll go, you know, I'll go back down with you, but this is far enough. I like it here. This is good enough. This is, you know, we know Jesus. We're in ministry. We're in church, and you know, we have Bible study. This is good. This is okay. I'm, I'm, this is enough, right? And so I was going to stay there, and they said, we're not coming back this way. We're going to repel off the other side of the mountain. So, um, you know, I thought to myself, I had that sobering moment. What if I hadn't jumped? No, I could never have gotten across without them. But what was my part? To choose. To choose to trust. And God allows us, sometimes he allows us to trust people, as a way of trusting him. And we got to the other side and I got to the top and it was no comparison. The, t- the view at the top was so much, so incredibly better than the view halfway up. Sometimes our greatest fear is the very doorway to the life we've always wanted to live. And I want to encourage you today to choose and to surrender to Jesus in every tiny little decision he asks you to make. Trust him with every little thing. If he asks you to change something in your life and you don't want to because you think people will look at you differently, if he asks you to become more vulnerable, if he asks you to do something for God that you're scared to do, if he asks you to take more time in your devotional time, whatever he asks you, I invite you to say yes to him because it will be the greatest decision that you ever make. And all those little decisions will lead you step by step into a place where you are going down the, high, the train tracks, like that train, straight to heaven. Because you, trust, chose, because you chose to trust in Jesus, who will never, ever fail you. 
I want to thank you for being here today, and I want to close with prayer. And then um, they're encouraging us in all of our seminars to close with a season of prayer. And so after I pray, I want to invite you to find a partner, two or three, and to gather in a group and pray for Jesus to continue the work in our lives so that we will truly live with him at the center of our life. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the amazing ability that you have to take us where we cannot go by ourselves. I think of the young man who took the girl that he loved to the highest mountain he had ever climbed and stood at the top and said to her, My love, I've gone as far as I can go on my own. Will you marry me so together we can go higher? And we turn to you now, Lord, and we, we want to see your eyes of love toward us. As the father that we may have never known, as the husband, the lover, the friend that we may have never had, Lord, please strip away from us the misconceptions we have of who you are, of the way you view us, and may we see your great love for us. May we see that truly... We have an empty tank. There is only so far that we can go on our own. And eventually we'll come to that point on the lonely stretch of highway where it says no services ahead. Nothing more that could humanly satisfy us. And we bottom out and realize that as wonderful and great and grand as the stuff of life and the people of life are, God-given, precious opportunity, as wonderful as they are, they will never satisfy. They will never fill the heart when emptiness fills the place that only you can fill. So dear Jesus, please make this real to us. Show us step by step, minute by minute, how to follow you, how to trust you, how to take the steps that you're asking us to take so that step by step we can walk with you and go to heaven. Thank you, Jesus, that you have walked this pathway for us, that you walk it with us. Thank you that you are trustworthy But, Lord, I'm praying a special prayer for each person here. Please show them what their greatest fear is. Please show them what they hold on to instead of you. And give them the strength, Lord, that superhuman strength, the power of the will that you have given to us. We didn't have it before when we sinned, but you have restored it to us by the wonderful work of redemption as you've defeated the enemy. So give us, Lord, give every person in this room, and I ask for myself too, Give us the strength of willpower, Lord, to choose you in whatever thing it is that you put a finger on and show us in our life. Lord, we take a moment right now to choose you. We want you in our life. We want to have the rest and the peace of being at home with you. Where all of our needs are met in you. Thank you, Jesus, for doing this work in our lives. And Lord, I just pray now that you bless this room. Fill it with your holy angels. Fill it with your Holy Spirit. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, Lord. We take a minute to realize and to admit how empty, how alone, how lost we are without you. We can't do it, God. You've allowed circumstances in our life to 
to convince us of that. And right now we admit it. We've sinned. We haven't chosen you in the little things of life. There are things that you've been asking of us that we haven't been surrendering. Right now we need your power. We need your victory. We need your deliverance. We choose to hold on to the rope. We choose to trust you. We open wide the doors of our heart, Lord, and we ask for you to fill us, to fill us with yourself. We're willing, Lord, to meet you at that place of emptiness, of fear, of shame, of guilt, loneliness. We're willing to meet you there, Jesus, and we're willing to trust you. Please and please strengthen our will. Please bless every one of us, Lord, myself included. Lord, may we not stop short of trusting you. May we keep going higher and higher, experiencing what it means to trust you. And I thank you for this in Jesus' name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC. A supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.